0: Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martini's coming up. Hey, really glad you're with us for the Wednesday edition of the Three Martini Lunch. We do not have a good martini for you today. We've got a bad and two crazies. And Jim, yesterday, as we said yesterday, was primary day in both Wyoming and Alaska. Uh, As expected in Alaska, four different people in the... Two races that we're watching most closely, Senate and House, will be headed to November. It's an odd situation. You could have up to three Republicans and one Democrat, and you assume the Republicans would um, uh, you know, put their second choice for the uh for the for another Republican, but you just never know, uh, because yesterday, uh, the Democrat was the top vote getter. And when you have Sarah Palin's former in-laws, uh, touting the other Republicans, sometimes you wonder if the Republicans are going to go with another Republican as their second choice. So oddities, oddities for sure. But uh, the one that everybody's talking about, of course, is the at-large House race in Wyoming, where Harriet Hageman got 66.3% of the vote, uh, roundly defeating Liz Cheney, who had just 28.9% of the vote. And Jim, I think it would have been worse, because if you look at the Democratic primary there, uh, less than 8,000 Democrats voted on the Democratic side. And in Wyoming, you can't cross over the day of to vote. So I think a lot of them did. Shows you how many uh, Republicans are there compared to Democrats. But uh, she 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 lost soundly, Liz Cheney did. And obviously there are people with many different views on that. Some people think this is the end of democracy. Other people think, well, Liz Cheney isn't really representative of her constituency anymore. And uh, when she and her dad were sending out videos before Election Day saying, my number one goal in life is to never have Donald Trump be elected president in a state where Donald Trump was uh, perhaps Winning by the widest margin shows that her constituency was perhaps no longer the people of Wyoming. But uh, here is uh, what she said last night, in addition to that her principles were the reason that she could not go along with what she called the Trump lie, uh, she, she compared herself somehow to Lincoln like this.
1: The great and original champion of our party, Abraham Lincoln, was defeated in elections for the Senate and the House before he won the most important election of all. Lincoln ultimately prevailed, he saved our union, and he defined our obligation as Americans for all of
0: history. Uh, We're also seeing today, Jim, in Politico that Liz Cheney is uh, launching a new organization designed to counter uh, and oppose any Donald Trump campaign for president for 2024. And she had an exclusive with Savannah Guthrie on the Today Show this morning. And after much prodding, uh, Cheney admitted she is considering a presidential run in 2024. But, Congressman, you didn't answer me yes or no. Yeah, I, know that Donald
1: you- Trump, I will be doing whatever it takes to keep Donald Trump out of the Oval Office. Well, I know you didn't say yes or no, and that's fine if you're thinking about it, but are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about running for president? It, uh, that's a decision that I'm going to make in the, in the coming months, Savannah. I'm not going to make any announcements here this morning, but, uh, but it is something that I, uh, I'm thinking
0: about. And so, Jim... Maybe all of this was uh, headed towards 2024 because she knew she couldn't win yesterday. But I don't know whether she plans to run a quixotic campaign as a Republican, whether she plans to run as an independent, which would hurt the Republican nominee, whoever it is. What do you make of, first of all, the results, but also what Liz Cheney's up to here? Yeah, uh, the results are more or less what we would have expected
1: Sure. You know, Liz Cheney may have thought that appealing to Democrats and asking them to cross over in the primary was going to be effective. And in the end, Greg, I think she got both Democrats uh, in the state to vote for her. That ended up not having the big difference that uh, she was hoping for. I'm left a little bit befuddled as to where Liz Cheney thinks she goes from here and whether she really wants to go where she appears to be going from here. In part because uh, you know she made a very deliberate decision. I am not going to compromise. I'm not going to soft pedal my opposition to Trump. In fact, I'm going to make that front and center what my candidacy in a primary in Wyoming is going to be about. I'm going to have my dad in the commercials, and we're going to call Donald Trump a coward. And we are just going to, you know, there's going to be no changing window. And in some levels, I mentioned in, in a couple places, that is a very principled stand. That that we say we want politicians who are willing to stand for their principles, who are willing to do what they think is right, even if it's popular. We don't want weather vanes who just turn whichever way the wind is blowing, right up until the moment we get it, and then we'd usually like ah, I didn't I didn't leave then I didn't want like there. So she took a stand. She refused to compromise, and she is now you know suffered the political consequence for that. And what I'm baffled by, Greg, are the sheer number of people, usually from Politico and publications that are not terribly friendly to Republicans, who seem convinced that in defeat, this has made Liz Cheney such a much more powerful figure, a much more consequential figure, and that it's much better for her to be in this position that she is now than to be just another member of the House in Kevin McCarthy's likely majority next year. And I'm left asking my question, Is it? And if if it is, what really is your goal? Because this argument, oh, she's going to start a super PAC. Okay, nobody else is one of those. Oh, she's starting a super PAC that wants to oppose Donald Trump. Those are really unique. None (laughs) of those exist. Yeah, we know that. You know what? I bet you, Greg, she's going to be on CNN and MSNBC a lot, where she'll tell viewers that Donald Trump is a threat to America and should not be returned to the president. Like, it's, you know, what all of this is shaping up to do is to turn her into a better looking and more compelling version of Mark Sanford and Joe Walsh and Evan McMullen and William Weld. You know, three of those guys ran against Trump in 2020. And I don't know if they ever hit 2% anywhere. I mean, they're, they're absolute asterisks and, and you know, really footnotes to the story of the 2020 campaign. So whether she wants to run, you know, launch a presidential campaign in the Republican Party and run against uh, Trump. And you know, I'm assuming Ron DeSantis, it's possible DeSantis doesn't run, but you know, um, you know, if she does that, the only thing she would end up doing would be splitting the anti-Trump vote. And maybe you could see her on a good day getting 20% in New Hampshire or something. But really, at this point, she's a perfectly calibrated candidate for the Morning Joe show on MSNBC, She's effectively John Kasich, et cetera. She's setting herself up as the Republican candidate for people who generally generally detest Republicans. The John Weaver candidate. That doesn't get you very far. Ask John Huntsman how that worked. Ask John Kasich how that worked. It doesn't, you know, um, there's a very hard ceiling for that. And the only thing you're doing is making it more likely that Trump wins the Republican nomination. And if he chooses to run as an independent, I guess it's a little bit more of a wild card, and that maybe she'd end up taking away some votes that might otherwise go to Trump in a head-to-head matchup. But uh, I'm not convinced, and you know, because I think if you're, I think if you're a Trump supporter, you're a Trump supporter. I think if you're a uh, the kind of person who really likes Liz Cheney and like to see her in the in the Oval Office, you're not a Trump supporter, and so you're more likely to have voted for the Democrat or maybe some, maybe maybe Libertarian or some other candidate. So. Um, I don't really see what that achieves either. So, uh, yeah, I, I guess the question, you know, I've, I've been quoting this, this comment from, uh, Stephen Covey going back years, begin with the end in mind. What is the end Liz Cheney wants to achieve? Because most of the ways we've been hearing about if her end really is, she doesn't care about her future in Congress. She doesn't care about her future in elected office. She just wants to stop Trump from ending up back in the white house most of the avenues that she's been discussing or that have been discussed around her would actually impede that goal instead of advancing it.
0: Yeah, a presidential campaign makes no sense for the reasons you explained. If she runs in the primary, she helps Trump. And uh, as she runs in his appendix, she helps uh, the Democrats win, which uh, I'm guessing she would say she's not supportive of most of the agenda. But at the same time, one of the reasons I think she lost so soundly and I think she would have lost anyway, just due to the impeachment vote and, and some other things. But she never asked for the January sixth committee to seat Republicans over when Pelosi tried to stop Jim Jordan and Jim Banks from being on the committee. She never had used any of her questions to cross-examine. She was she was just singularly focused uh, the whole time on. On uh, going after Trump. And there are serious questions about uh, January 6th. I'm not saying that they shouldn't be asked and so forth, but if she wanted to seem like she was really a Republican and really a conservative, she would have at least fought for those things. And then she voted the wrong way on a couple of big pieces of legislation, including the uh, infrastructure bill, and uh, while I know this is a, a tricky issue in her family, uh, I'm guessing most people in Wyoming weren't happy that she voted to codify same-sex marriage nationwide. So uh, it, she just became known for one thing and bucking her own party, and there was no way that that was going to work. And so I think this was kind of a long game uh, rebranding of herself more than an effort to actually win this race.
1: Yeah, you know I I am struck by the idea that her becoming a you know more well-known, and probably well-liked version of Mark Sanford represents a win for her or for what she stands for or for you know Trump skeptical or anti-Trump Republicans I, I just I, I mean, it's better for her she'll get a, b- a book deal she'll get invited to teach somewhere she'll get the standard post-Congress you know uh uh you know uh, consolation prizes but in terms of actually influencing policy, she's now much less influential than she used to be. And I keep bringing up this example. I'm reminded of when Jim DeMint left the Senate, resigned his seat after you know winning re-election, um, and said that he was going to be he wanted to head up the Pre- the Heritage Foundation. Now, let's not a, no, no denying that's a sweet gig and literally a once in a lifetime opportunity, considering how long Filner had been there. And this idea was well, I'm going to do more for the conservative movement outside the government than I can do inside. And I think that was always. Um, Self-justifying or self-deluding logic there. I don't think Jim DeMint did more for the cause of conservatism over at Heritage than he could have done as a U.S. Senator, unless you want to make the argument that the single most important thing Jim DeMint did was set up the rise of Tim Scott
0: well that's true and i think uh, tim scott is uh, a great player in the party right now it's hard not to love tim scott but yeah i, I think uh, some people do convince themselves of things that aren't true and jim if you it was real quick but if you looked at the lincoln memorial last night you could see lincoln's eyebrows raising when she says well you know abraham lincoln lost races too <laughs> yeah but i've never seen marble move like that yeah <laughs> it's kind of the really really we're gonna go with that line okay uh wow All right, Jim, on to our first crazy martini now, and we always knew this was the case. We knew it in our bones as conservatives because Democrats are never about solving deficits or inflation or anything like that. They always want to spend more money on the things they care about most, and of course, that's what's happening in this new piece of legislation, which they've uh, just absurdly named the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, if I'm going to call it anything, I'll call it the IRA because it's going to blow up on our faces. Ah. Ah, yeah, I get a strongly worded email from Peter King now about that or something. But, <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, of course, you got the CBO. You've got Penn Wharton saying this isn't going to do anything to solve inflation. Uh, but of course, they're sicking uh, 87,000 new IRS agents on us to shake us upside down and see if any loose pocket change falls out that they can collect uh, to try and uh, add to their revenue. But as literally as Biden signs the deal, we're not even hearing this name about inflation reduction anymore. Biden yesterday actually uses the name of the legislation in the first part of his tweet and then doesn't mention inflation again. He says the Inflation Reduction Act is now law. Giving Medicare the power to negotiate lower prescription drug prices, ensuring wealthy corporations pay their fair share in taxes, and taking the biggest step forward on climate in our history. Uh, Yeah, that means a lot of spending. AP in their headline, President Joe Biden signed Democrats' landmark climate change and health bill. ABC News, President Biden hands Senator Joe Manchin a pen after signing sweeping health, climate, and tax bill into law. Jim, they knew from the get-go that that's not what this did. They lied to the American people. And uh, unless they uh, somehow tax corporations to death here, the spending is going to uh, vastly outrun the revenue and inflation is only going to get worse. So I noticed the other day Joe
1: Manchin was bragging that he was the one who came up with the name Inflation Reduction Act. And I think now that we, you know, we, we, after basically a, a year, an entire year of people, you know, Manu Raju effectively stalking Joe Manchin and the protesters outside his houseboat saying, what's it going to take to get Joe Manchin on board? What's it going to take to get him to support Build Back Better? He wanted to name it. That that was pretty that, that was that was really the big, you know, the, the big thing there. Yes, you can point to a little bit of policy tweaks here and there. But basically, this is a you know, not nearly what Democrats wanted, but a big spending bill, particularly on stuff that would have been in a Green New Deal. The most immediate things that kick in are tax credits for heat pumps, for electric cars, for solar panels, et cetera, et cetera. None of that is anti-inflationary. If you government starts handing out money to do things, or and, and giving a tax credit is effectively doing that, well, you're actually just putting more money into the economy, and you're only making things worse. Um, the the grand, you know, result of that was that Joe Manchin wanted to name it. That that was his asking price. That was what that was his line in the sand. And a little bit, you know, during that you know week or so where people were wondering was Kirsten Cinema going to go on board? Um, I appeared on Hugh Hewitt's program, and Hugh had this you know vision of her. Holding out for a new nuclear plant in every state in the country, she was going to hold out for a 500 ship navy that she had more power than anybody else, and she was going to have the ability to make the Democrats give her whatever she wanted in order to get her to sign on, so they could pass this bill. And in the end, she wanted a tweak to the tax provisions. That was it. That was that was you know all in all, I did not see a lot of Democrats complaining that the concession they made to Kirsten Cinema was some sort of backbreaking, you know, um, horrific compromise that made the whole exercise worthwhile. In the end, for the perspective of the average American, that's a tweak, that's not a significant change. So both of these senators who have been obstacles to this bill for so long ended up being serious disappointments for conservatives. And I do think there's a lesson here in falling in love with any Democrat who is at the moment uh, blocking the Democratic agenda. Uh, in the end, Kirsten Cinema decided to give the people who chased her into the bathroom what they wanted, as long as it didn't raise taxes as much as, much as you know she thought was too much. That's what it came down to. Um, and then finally, just the obsession over what you name the bill and the significance of it reminds me of a really kind of bit of obscure bit of Washington trivia: the Graham-Rudman-Hollings Balanced Budget Act, uh, which was passed by the House back in 1985. Um, and it basically uh, was designed to reduce spending, to make really necessary cuts to the entire U.S. government. Now, it didn't really make big cuts, as you may have noticed. The debt is actually still very large. But after a while, people stopped referring to it as the Graham-Rudman-Hollings Balanced Budget Act and just started calling it Graham-Rudman. In the end, what the Balanced Budget Act finally cut was Hollings.
0: (laughs) That is a good bit of political history. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly the way legislation gets titled all the time is some tortured a- acronym anyway that doesn't actually relate much to what the bill does many times. But uh, the American people are sold a bill of goods and, you know, it in a couple of different ways, they're not talking about inflation reduction anymore. And the speed at which they passed this thing without a lot of uh, ability to explain it to the American people shows they knew they were pulling a fast one. But uh, enjoy the IRS knocking on your door. That'll be fun. All right, on to our crazy martini now, crazy martini number two. And Jim, it's past mid-August now. So in some parts of the country, back to school has already begun. In other parts of the country, it's going to be happening soon. Uh, and that includes the District of Columbia. And while most of the country, and heck, even the CDC now, is basically saying, let's let's get back to normal when it comes to COVID, that's not where DC is. They are forcing all students to be vaccinated before they're back in school. Well, in the District of Columbia, between the ages of 12 and 18, 40% of black students are unvaccinated. So what happens to them? Well, that was a question that uh, Douglas Blair of the Daily Signal, that's related to the Heritage Foundation, asked D.C. Mayor Muriel Bowser earlier this week and here's how that went. We have reporting that around 40% of black students in the district are unvaccinated and therefore under the district's current policy regarding schools will be unable to attend school come uh, the school semester starting so why is the district con- continuing with this policy when it seems to disproportionately impact black students?
1: Um, I don't think that that number is correct um, we have a substantially few fewer number of kids that we have to engage with vaccination um, and I explained why it's important. Um, It's important for the public
0: health of our students and that we can maintain safe environments. And as Blair says in his tweet, Jim, 40%, she says that number's high. That's her number. So she's clearly trying to pull the wool over his eyes and anyone else who's who's listening. I assume she's going to have to relent here. Uh, I mean, obviously, D.C. schools are in shambles anyway, but uh, now they're not even letting you through the door uh, up to 40% of uh, students 12 to 18 if they haven't gotten a shot. So I am
1: reminded of that scene from Office Space where the consultants come in and say, just what is it? Would you say you do here? <laughs> because it isn't educating kids if you're going to block forty some percent of African American kids from the uh, schoolhouse door. And let's face it, that you know just that vision there, that scene has some really unfortunate uh, historical illusions. Uh, there, at some point, you have to meet the people where they are. You just as we were talking about regarding. Uh, state policies on abortion, a couple of this, you, the, this DC public schools might say, by golly, we want every single kid fully vaccinated and, and boosted against COVID-19. And never remind the fact that, you know, COVID-19 is most dangerous to those who are elderly and those are, who are immunocompromised. Everybody who's in those categories has had now, we're coming up on like a year and a half to two years to get cells vaccinated, started rolling out in early 2021. We're now well into 2022 anybody who's not vaccinated at this point they, they've heard all the arguments they've heard all the data going back and forth they, they've seen they chances are they know people who've had COVID. chances are they've seen people who've had COVID. uh the cases of you know cases of severe cases amongst kids are pretty darn rare i know a bunch of kids who've had it mine have not so far but you know at some point chances are they're gonna get it it's you know it's unpleasant you know you got the sniffles sometimes if you know run a fever uh, but by and large, you you know, it's a, it's a summer cold for a bunch of the, the kids who I've known it. Uh, and then you look at the figures from the American Academy of Pediatrics. It's been most mild within kids, particularly the younger they are, the less at risk they are. Um, you know, we, we all know this. At some point, the D.C. public schools has to stop thinking like, well, our job is to strong arm these kids into getting vaccinated. most or Our job is to strong arm those parents into getting their kids vaccinated. And instead, their job is saying, what, what, what are you here to do? We're here to educate kids, right? Now, if you want to do the first class of the first day, here's your teacher saying, here's why I'm vaccinated, and here's why it's important. You want to send out you know, mailers home with the, the kids, fine. You want to you know, uh, do an auditory, you know, do whatever you want, but in the end, get back to the job of educating kids because we've got this massive learning loss that we've been dealing with for the past couple of years. And inner city uh, African-American kids are probably amongst the demographics who suffer the most from this. These are the kids who can least afford to be outside of school. But in the end, D.C. public schools doesn't re- it, like decisions like this demonstrate educating the kids isn't job one. It might be somewhere around six or seven if we're lucky.
0: Unbelievable. You know, for the context here. We are considering a good martini today, and it was yesterday's ceremonial signing in Arizona of the school voucher bill, where Arizona is going to give parents, I think it's $7,000 a student, uh, to choose the educational option that works best for that student and that family. It's empowering parents. It's a uh, real school choice. And when you see a monopoly like DC public schools not even letting close to half the kids from of ages 12 to 18 in the doors unless they do X, Y, and Z, boy, it really uh, shows showcases why parents need to have these options, not just in D.C., which is an educational train wreck and had the opportunity, you know, several years ago to move in the direction of school choice. And all those people got, you know, run out of town on a rail. Uh, But it shows why it's not only needed here, but everywhere. Yeah. Decisions like that are part of why we can't have nice things, Greg. (laughs) No doubt about it. All right, Jim. Well, hope springs eternal for a good martini tomorrow. (laughs) See you then. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Corumbus of Radio America. Thanks so much for being with us today. And do tell a friend about the podcast as well. Uh, Thank you also for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please, please keep those coming. They're a huge help to us. Get us on your home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Wednesday. And please join us again on Thursday for the next Three Martini Lunch. This week on the Federalist Radio Hour. The political sphere has a tendency, and I know I'm, I'm guilty of this at times, to talk about this as though it's a game of risk. And it's yeah. pawns on a board. And it's a conversation about the strategic minutiae, um, or even the big picture, that what gets lost in it are the human faces. I'm Emily Jashinsky of The Federalist. Subscribe to The Federalist on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts.